I've over recent years really been grappling with my faith and, and, and what it means. Not that I'm any distant from God, but maybe it's about grappling with who the church is. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine that sponsors this show. Today on The Profile, I'm really pleased to be joined by Marvin Rees. Marvin is the recently re-elected mayor of Bristol. That's a post that he's held since 2016 when he became the first mayor of Black African heritage of any European city. Marvin's career began working for the Christian charity Tear Fund. He later spent time in Washington, D.C., working with Tony Campolo before becoming a broadcast journalist with the BBC back in the UK. He has a master's in political theory and government, and he lives in Bristol with his wife and children. Marvin, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Great to be connected with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We always like to start by asking a bit about a person's early life growing up. So tell me a little bit about what life was like growing up for you. Yeah, well, I, I think um, I described my childhood. You know, I, I had a loving family uh, and I, I know that my family loved me and I was wanted, but life was still quite tough. I, you know, my mum was single. Uh, we didn't have much money. My sister came along too. I'm a mixed race kid, 1970s Britain. So you've got kind of national front rolling around. You've got racial fractures. Um, so, and that, that, yeah, that gave me you know, quite a challenging childhood. I, I, I think I look back on my childhood now and I realise just how I wasn't happy lots of the time. I wasn't, I wasn't like down, but I, it just wasn't a, a childhood full of uh, joy. I was very serious about things, but probably reflected on the fact that the circumstances in which I was growing up. And tell me a little bit about where Christian faith first came in the picture for you. Is that something that came through family? Yeah, I, I, I think it did. Um, I don't necessarily think in an overt way. So my mum had grown up in, spent some time in Merthyr Tidville, so she always remembers going to chapel and kind of chapels left around after revival and all that. Um, but I, I just always believed as a kid. I just always had a sense of the infinite, uh, you know, a person, God. And that, that was, that's always been with me. Then I, when I moved from Lawrence Weston, which is a big housing estate on the edge of Bristol to Eastern, I went to St. Nicholas, which is a Catholic primary school. And the, the teaching around God was obviously a lot more coherent there. Um, to me, it was natural. I can remember standing up in, in one of our, our mass and saying I wanted to be a priest. Um, I, I think that, I don't necessarily think I did, but it was an early expression, I think, of my desire to do something. Uh, and then um, at the age of, I think, about 10, uh, mum met some old friends who invited her to church to what they called a crusade at the time, not the language we'd use now. And um, I went up and they said, you need Jesus in your life. And as a kid, I thought, well, of course you do. And responded. And ever since then, with various degrees of commitment and success on my part, I've been, you know, trying to be a bit of a, you know, a disciple. I wanted to ask actually a bit about, about that. You say varying degrees of, of commitment and success, which is a lovely way of putting it. But the question I wanted to ask was how has faith changed and developed over time? So I guess from a, a childhood faith, uh, I love the way you put it of, well, I was a child and I thought, yeah, of course you need Jesus in your life. From, from whatever you understood then to today, I imagine there's been a lot of progression and change. And how would you um, articulate some of how your faith has changed? Um, since that, that yeah, I, I change is an interesting word. You know, we can play. I probably call it developing. 
so I think many of the things I was committed to as a child, many things I do now are from my own experiences. Right? So the commitment to tackling poverty, um, to build an inclusive city, to one in which people have hope, and then the practical outworkings of that, building affordable homes, trying to tackle period poverty, trying to tackle child hunger, trying to support the economy so we've got decent jobs for people, we've got a living wage. All that is, you know, you could trace that back to our seed, so it's been growing uh, through time. Um, my, 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 my journey with God has is, is changed, has is, is developed too. So um, I remember being quite kind of literal and, you know, explicit about my faith. But I also, my, my, I really began to develop an understanding of my Christianity when I studied my first, my first master's in uh, the politics of black America. And I really took my theology from the black activists, African-American activists in the United States, but also at the same time, looking at the challenges of people like Martin Luther King to the white church, right? who, who had too little to say on segregation and maybe said too much on slavery because too many of them backed it. Um, and so that struggle with, well, who is God as King asking his letter from Birmingham jail? I've been through your cities, I've seen your seminaries and your church spires, and I said to myself, who is their God? Who worships there? Um, and, and I suppose my, my sense of God, my sense of what a life of faith is, really began to boil itself out, looking at that, that, the ferocity of that commitment to building a just country and the, the absolute failure, the trail you know, of churches who'd failed, not only failed to stand up for justice, but actually had backed injustice and given it, given it moral, given it support endorsement. We see that somewhat today too. Yeah. And you've been critical in the past, I know of, um, particularly the American evangelical church today on an issue like Black Lives Matter and, and even politically in, in endorsing Trump, you felt like that, that actually cuts against the very faith that Christians are supposed to have, a, a kind of faith that actually makes a real world difference it isn't just about believing the right thing but it's actually about practicing it in a way that as you say leads to um uh, human flourishing and something that you're clearly passionate about as a politician well i'm up for the discussion and by the way i mean i am elected and this is another discussion i am elected but you know when when you described as a politician it's kind of like all the other aspects of the character because sometimes disappear i've just got myself elected um, but, but, you know, I'm also someone who works at the BBC, works in the voluntary sector, works in the NHS, works for Tier Fund, and I'll do something else at some point. So it's just, it's just an expression of who I am for this particular point in time. But yeah, listen, I'm up for the discussion on it. But I struggle to see how the, so much of the evangelical church in the United States was so opposed to Obama. And, uh, I, uh, but then we'll come out with the argument, well, God can use anyone. So we'll, we'll work with Trump, um, who... You know, and I don't need to go over his record. I, I struggle with that. But I also struggle with that, how that goes back towards the, the way the church has conducted itself historically. And, and, and I will say personally that um, I've over recent years really been grappling with my faith and, and, and what it means. Not that I'm any distant from God, but maybe it's about grappling with who the church is. And, and I think that one of the biggest sources of what I would call anti-testimony uh, as to God is actually the political position of the church that's rallied behind that kind of uh, reactionary, simplistic, alienating, othering, um, dare I say, angry with a tinge of hate politics.
it's interesting you say that about you know re- reassessing or re-examining faith um, because I think a lot of people have, would find themselves in agreement with that in recent years and looking at some of the things that happen in the world and think, well, actually, where does my faith come in here and rethinking things? Are you able to articulate in the last few years what, what kind of has um, developed or how your thinking has has moved on in that way in, when it comes to your faith and theology? Yeah, I think I think it's much more, it's messier. Maybe that's the way of, uh, of putting it. I remember the phrase when I was growing up, if you don't know, you're not. And there was this, this idea in, in the world of faith that I'd come into contact with through a Christian union at university and all that, um, that you had, certainty was, was the mark of faith, right? And I would also say, I did hear it on this TV channel the other day as well. Someone's t- kind of talking about um, almost putting your brain aside, you know, don't trust your senses was the comment. There's the, don't trust your senses, trust the word. Uh, but by the way, I'm going to tell you what the word says. <laughs> so, it's, you know, so I, I, I kind of, obviously I was on a learning journey and I would listen to older people in that sense that you have to have certainty, you have to know. Um, and you know, don't trust your feelings and emotions in, in your brain. Uh, you know, so I, I kind of struggle a lot more. I, I'm much more comfortable with complexity today. And risk. In fact, I, I think that's, you know, the, the, the parable of the talent says that in many ways for me. You know, you're not, you don't stand before God and get rewarded because you, you know, you stood on the touch line, kept yourself clean, didn't get in the game. You, you get rewarded because you took a risk. You know, the risk of the person who invested their talents was that they, that, that they wouldn't get a return, right? That they, that they would fail in their investment. You know what? Sometimes that happens. Uh, I, I I suppose where I've got to in my faith is that it has to do something and it has to do something with my fallen self in an imperfect country with an imperfect political party in a broken political system in a fallen world and all the rest of it. You know, somehow I've got to line all these things up and try to make something happen. And you know what? Some days it won't happen. Uh, but my call is not necessarily to win every time. You know, even though it's nice to do that, my call is to take the talents I've got in the face of the challenges and opportunities that are facing me and try and make good things happen for my fellow human being. I'd love to hear a little bit about what the state of the church is like actually in Bristol. Uh, Having visited myself, um, I know there's actually a lot of Christian history in Bristol for one thing, but given you are, uh, given your role as mayor and given your own personal faith, um, how would you describe the church, the churches in Bristol today? It's been a really interesting journey watching the church. And actually, I'm not overclaiming what I mean, but clearly I'm, you know, I'm of the church, uh, you know, in, in so many ways. Growing up in the church, Andy Padgett in Trinity Tabernacle, then working for Tier Fund, working for Jim Wallace, working for Tony Campolo, coming back, uh, being a member of Woodlands and Hope Chapel, going to Vineyard for a while. So I, I've had all these, uh, and, then I, and then I pop and run for mayor. And, and so the, the church has been interesting to see. Now, Bristol's churches have, and, and certain ones in particular have always been involved in good city engagement. Whether you're talking about projects like 125, that work with women in street prostitution, um, you know, faith groups working with uh, women in, in uh, brothels, uh, children's services outreach. We've got Muller, George Muller Heritage in the, in the city with the Muller Foundation. You know, some amazing things have been happening with the church in the city. But I think what we've seen over recent years is, is also 
what with me being here as well is a church that's really beginning to step into city leadership because I've offered that that challenge too. A few years ago, back at, actually before I was mayor, um, I was worked in a council for a little bit and I had the council leader just at the beginning of austerity. And um, I said to the, the leader of the council, the political leader, look, you know, we've got all these churches in the city doing amazing things. You should meet them and they can, you know, go on a journey with you and the city as you begin to face these financial cuts. But I said, it's not just about the churches stepping up to make up for financial cuts. It's about talking to the churches about how you make wise decisions as well, right? Of members council. So we had that meeting and it was, you know, and I thought it was really positive. But at the end of the meeting, I turned to the church leaders and I said, well, now the political leader of the city has asked you for help. You need to have some ideas. <laughs> you can't go back and do prophetic preaching about a political system that's failed when the political system has said, can you come and tell us how to do it? And you've had nothing to say. And I think that's the journey we've gone on now. And I've said to the churches, uh, I want to hear from you. Uh, but on some issues, I want you to show me how you did it. Racial reconciliation, building community across gaps of wealth and power, poverty and powerlessness, uh, building community in general, because it's a bit of a challenge to the church to come and challenge political leaders to deliver on these issues if they haven't been able to do it. And most churches would say they have the power of the spirit of God. Right? So show me how you did it and then come and make an offer to the city. And I say what, churches in the city of Bristol have been stepping up and have been a real source of pride for me. That's very interesting. As you say, churches are sometimes known for critiquing politics. But as you say, if you invite them in and say, OK, show us how we can do it better and work with us. Do you have any practical... Well, can we just talk about that, that critiquing politics as well? Because listen, I'm talking as an insider here as well. There's a challenge there too. I was at an event uh, a few years ago, it's probably about eight years ago, and um. Uh, it was about Christians in business and politics, about trying to get Christians to get involved. And I was on a panel. I wasn't elected at the time then, but I was constantly encouraging people to step up into public leadership, be it elections on boards. And someone in the audience said, I don't want to join a political party because there'd be a leader and I probably wouldn't agree with everything uh, they said. And political parties are always fighting over points of, of minor difference and can't get themselves organised and causing conflict. And, and I said, well, to me, that just sounds like the church. Right. Do you agree with everything every leader says in the church? Um, does the church get involved in conflict over minor points of theological difference that mean that they can't reconcile? Do we have black churches and white churches and Asian churches in a faith that said it is ultimately about reconciliation and, you know, one one community of people? Yes, we do. So there's there's not thick ice you know, in terms of the church's legacy as being a source of peace and community. Uh, and, and, and togetherness. And I, I think there's a degree of humility that's needed within the church when it comes to pronouncements on the, the failures of political leadership. Now, that does not mean that there's not a prophetic role for the church in challenging the failures of political leadership. Absolutely, it doesn't. And it's absolutely needed. But, it, but there's a way of offering that. And I think part of that has to be done with a degree of humility. But we've had churches in the city on the front line of feeding Bristol, feeding our hungry children, people like Andy Street, house building now, Z-Pods, modern methods of, methods of construction, Ed Robry um, has been on the, um, on the um, sorry, Jess Sweetland has been on the front end of that with something called the Bristol Housing Festival, which has recently fed into the Archbishop of Canterbury's Housing Commission that I uh, sat on. We've had really innovative financial models brought through through a thing called the City Funds that Ed robry has been involved in and is actually chaired by Andy Street as well. That's not a church project, but it's about people from the churches 
getting involved in really interesting areas of, 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 of um, city leadership. You listed a moment ago a number of different churches that you've personally been involved in, attended over the years. Is there one church in particular that you are now kind of a member of or attend regularly? Yeah, I'm, I'm a member of Hope Chapel. Um, it was founded by Silas and Annie Crawley um, um, and now um, is led by Chris and Alice Bond. So, yeah, it's a really special uh, church. Interestingly, the, 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 one of the reasons we ended up settling there is very practical. So I married an American when I was studying at Eastern University and she knew people at Hope. So she came to the country, she gets to choose a church. We go to the one where she knows people. And also they're very good with children. So the morning service actually uh, sometimes borderline chaotic because the kids are running everywhere. But it's nice for a parent because you could just relax. <laughs> yeah. But your children <laughs> could just run around. And they do a great breakfast before the service as well. That's always wow. helpful. That is always good. Um, uh, I imagine, though, the, the breakfast before the service might have been difficult to do at various points this year, what with COVID. Um, has has the, the move to online church, has that been something that you've... Uh, you've grappled with or like a lot of Christians have struggled with I think there's a massive difference yes. isn't there between being physically in the room with people and then trying to watch something on the screen it, it can feel quite jarring at times can't it yeah it's been hard I mean yeah but um Chris and Alice moved things to Facebook lives you know straight out of the traps but it, it is a different experience but people will talk and see each other outside those channels but ultimately it's second best because physically gathering together um, is is what we, I think, what we as human beings are designed to do, and and church offers that that community, doesn't it? You know, where you can just grab a two minute conversation, say, hey, how you doing? Why don't we meet up this afternoon? The, the loss of that has has been huge. I, I think probably very difficult to measure, but we know it's it's cost us. Yeah, I mentioned at the beginning, um, you were the first directly elected black mayor in Europe. Do you? Do you find that to be a wonderful personal achievement that you're proud of or, and maybe it's both these things, or is it, is there a sense of this is a bit depressing? It took so long. Um, how do you feel about that tag being applied to your name? Well, it is both. Um, I welcome it. I like telling the story. It's a proud, it's a proud thing for me. It's great for me to be able to share with my you know, children as I encourage them to think, you know, think big for, for what they can be, to be ambitious. Um, so that's a great source of pride. But yeah, it's it's odd. When I, um, I went to the Congressional Black Caucus just after being elected in 2016, went over with Operation Black Vote, and I was introduced to a room of African-American mayors, probably about 170, 180 in the room. And when I was introduced as the first uh, mayor of African heritage in Europe, uh, which they... Of any major European city, we're saying we can't quite locate, but there have been rumours that there was another mayor of a small town somewhere. Okay. Uh, but any major European city, that is certainly. Sure. Um, uh, there was a gasp around the room. It's like, really? You know, we've had African American mess for all their the racial tension and inequality, and uh, you know, they've had the Barack Obama, the Condoleezza Rice, the Colin Powells, you know, the Andrew Youngs. You know, they. They've had these uh, people and we haven't had that in Europe. And it just shows the kind of different ways that race and racial hierarchy can play themselves out. Because interestingly, in Britain, we were a lot more comfortable with interracial mixing. Uh, you, you know, so the, the Americans have had the political, intellectual, um, entrepreneurial class in, the, in Britain. We haven't, but we've been more comfortable with 
interracial relationships and, and friendships. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales. Thank you so much for joining me for The Profile this afternoon. It's great to have your company. I am interviewing Marvin Rees. Marvin is the mayor of Bristol. So we're talking about his Christian faith and also other issues related to the church and politics in Bristol and beyond. Really interesting person to talk to. So I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Marvin Rees. There's lots more coming up for you. We're going to just take a very short break. We'll be back. Before we go to that break, wanted to remind you that this show is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine. And we have got a superb special offer on for you right now. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. And for only one pound a month, you can get the print magazine delivered to your door and you get full online access and you get the Premier Christianity app. So you'll be able to read the magazine in print and online for just one pound a month for your first three months. That's a special limited offer just for this summer. So head to premierchristianity.com right now to take advantage of that special offer. One pound a month for your first three month subscription to Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Go and get that offer right now at premierchristianity.com and we'll be right back after this. More. 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 We often want more, but is it always a bad thing? Isn't wanting more knowledge a good thing? What about more understanding? More perspective. More wisdom. More action. More inclusion. Discover more of the good things at the brand new Premier Christianity magazine website. So much more than a monthly magazine, Premier Christianity website helps you go deeper in your faith and is full of inspiration of what God is doing in the world today. It's Premier Christianity, but so much more. Register today at premierchristianity.com. premierchristianity.com So we're speaking, of course, uh, one year on from when Black Lives Matter protesters uh, took down the statue of Edward Coulston and threw it took into the it Yes, a very polite way of putting it. <laughs> tore it down. Is tore it down <laughs> preferable? I've used the word hauled, but yeah. Hauled. Yeah. Hauled, took or, or teared down. I mean, yeah. it, this is going to sidetrack us, but it is interesting, of course, even in this, in this conversation, exactly what language is used is very important, isn't it? And we can maybe talk about that in a moment. But anyway, Edward Coulston, um, slave trader, um, and that, of course, resulted in national, international headlines, press. It became a huge talking point in the middle of, of that movement of Black Lives Matter. Um, now, I think you found, I think it's fair to say you found yourself in a slightly conflicted position, arguably, because you said, of course, as mayor of Bristol, you would not condone criminal damage. But you also said it was an incredible moment for Bristol. You talked about how it was historic. You're not a bit conflicted on that. No, yeah, absolutely. But isn't that isn't that most isn't isn't that the case in most of our realities uh, that we live in a complicated world, and in a complicated world sometimes two things can be true at the same time, uh, and they're not they're not you know easy bedfellows right they 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 eat each other they conflict with each other, so so my point was that yeah I cannot condone criminal damage but I'm not going to pretend that uh, I will I will I have that having a statue to someone who made their money from the kidnapping, enslavement, killing, 
torture, exploitation. And you know what's at the end, you know, remember, slavery was not just about people going picking cotton and cutting sugar cane. Um, it's also rape, uh, torture, all the other things that went along with the plantation life um, or the middle passage where uh, on in terms of, you know, the anticipation is about 25% of people thrown overboard. Sharks used to follow the ships because uh, they knew we were going to get something to eat. So you got to think about the full horrors of, uh, of, of what went on. Would I, do I lament the loss of a statue, the removal of a statue, uh, put it polite, uh, uh, to someone who made their money like that? No, I don't. Do I think there are better people we could uh, be celebrating or, or movements, you know, that we could choose to remember? Absolutely. All the people that fought for the rights of working class people, the dockers that fought for women's rights, uh, for children's rights uh, in, in, in a city have made incredible contributions who, who've been um, lost to our public consciousness uh, while someone like Colston has been, you know, emblazoned in our public consciousness. The Church of England has um, issued guidance recently on some statues that will exist in churches um, uh, around the UK to similarly um, controversial, to put it mildly, historical figures who many people feel like they deserve to be torn down as well. And the Church of England is basically allowing individual churches to make up their own minds as to whether they locally want to remove or put plaques next to certain statues to give explanations. What was your reaction to that move from the Church of England to basically say to priests, uh, this is something you need to be thinking about. And here's some guidance on how to reassess these statues and these um, plaques that are in your church building. I think there needs to be, uh, I think there needs to be, to, again, if I talk about contradictions here, there needs to be a certainty around this, right? What are we about? What do we stand for? Um, you know, the symbols we use, right? The symbols, the people we choose to remember and the symbols we choose to use for those memories tell us about who we are and what we stand for, all right? Um, one African-American who worked in New Orleans said, he said, to, he said he was at an event discussing memorials and he said, can't you find people to celebrate who didn't kidnap people and rape people and exploit them? He said there were loads of people you could choose. Why do you choose the, you know, these people and then invest your heart loyalty towards uh, those people? And we could just go through the history books, do some better quality history and find you know, people. No one's perfect, but we could find some upstanding people. So I think making a clear statement, reminding us what we stand for, what we say our values are, but then you have to be, I think there's an element of gentleness in there as well. And you have to make space for people to go on their journey and say, well, this is what we're about. Now you go on your journey with your building and you make a decision about whether your building stands up for that. You know, one of the points I've made about Colston is that if you want to advocate for the statue to remain and statues to these kind of people to remain, that's fine. You know, that's, that's your business, but let's just be honest about it. You know, let's not, don't argue for things to remain because you're going to say this was a good person and, you know, was morally superior to everyone else. All right. Let's just be honest and fulsome in our historical understanding and make the decision in that context. If after learning all that, your position is, well, we need to keep the statue there. Fine. You make that, that case but you've got to make that case owning the consequences of the case that you're making, which, which isn't always happening. What we're getting is in, in Bristol, for example, some people saying, well, we've got to keep Colston because he was an upstanding guy. I read it today. He was a top class guy. He's an upstanding guy. Well, that's not accurate. That's not historically accurate. 
<laughs> I get I get what people would say about historical context and that, but that's not. Let's just be honest about the history. Uh, well, the, the, I, the historical, I mean, the historical context argument in this case presumably has been answered in that those who say, "Well, we we can't we can't forget history," surely they, those people who argue that, should be happy with what has been happened, which is this is now in a museum and there is explanation about who he was, about why it was taken down, and it is yeah. now set in a his, historical context within a museum. So has that not has not that side of the argument um, been answered by the way that you've dealt with the statue? Well, I'd hoped it has, because, again, what we've done with the statue on that very point is we set up a Bristol History Commission chaired by Professor Tim Cole from the University of Bristol. Now, that History Commission is not a lobby group. It's not a campaign organisation. They are professional historians. And what, there's a reason we did it like that. It, it's so that this, when they go into the history, it's not, it's not all about Colston, by the way. As Tim says, Colston is the departure point. It's not the destination as they launch out from Colston to do that fuller story of Bristol, what they're doing is using the skills of professional historians to feed back to Bristol on its story, right? And gather these stories. So we have a, an informed understanding of, of who we are. They're not, you know, running a mass Twitter campaign or, you know, mass posting. So it should be intelligent, reflective, um, informed. Uh, and that's really important. That's gone into the, the, the display of Colston. So it's not a judgmental display. It's a display shaped by good quality history. So here's a statue. This is what happened to it. This is Colston. This is who Colston was. These are some of the placards that were up when it was pulled down. And here's a survey. What do you want to happen to Colston? What do you want to happen uh, to the empty plinth? And so while I, while I don't want to say we should separate ourselves from our emotions, there's, there's a safety, I think, in being somewhat dispassionate about it as and just saying, well, let's, let's let the history do the talking. Then you take your position. Has it been difficult being a Christian in public life? Have there been any specific challenges you've found with, um, with the role of being mayor? Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say so, to be honest. Um, you know, I mean, I get, you get your trolls. Someone, you know, some, some rag started to call me Reverend Reese and all that type of stuff. And, Start to say I was trying to introduce a theocracy. <laughs> it does, doesn't seem to have been very successful so far. If, if no, that no. But I mean, it's you know, I think much of that trolling stuff is so nonsense. You know, when it first happens, you're like, oh gosh, you know. But in the end, you know, it becomes so nonsense. It just washes over you. You know, there's no, there's no sense. There's no coherence. It's just that if I, I don't want to give you a non-Christian image here, but. You know, the way I see it is kind of 60-odd-year-old 60 60 old men sitting around their underpants late at night writing mean things to people on the internet. It's like, you know, what, what has your life come to? <laughs> that this is, this is the way you are. What has your life come to that you've got time to sit on the internet just to tell them, you know, we're not even understanding the issues, having no nuance of just trying to make people feel bad. I mean, you know, take up a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> pick up a frisbee do something you know so i don't i don't i don't mind that um and again i've, I've never been embarrassed about it. you know one of my points people have made it put made points about my christianity but look if i say that i grew up living with my mum you know we spent time in a refuge life was tough you know it was a bit of domestic violence and all that type of stuff and and me having a sense of calling of purpose of meaning that came from my belief 
in God, if I say that, help me escape the circumstances of my childhood, what business is that of yours to say, that's not, no, you're not allowed to believe that. I'm saying it was important to me, right? It wasn't a vehicle I attached myself onto. It was a part of me. And it was a part of me that gave me resilience and gave me a sense of purpose that I then pursued and has ended up with me going to university and getting off to Yale and becoming mayor today. It's my, it's so, it's so in many ways, I, I kind of like quite belligerent about it. It's my business. But what, what we do do is judge me by the results. It, what's your problem? We're trying to build affordable homes. We're trying to feed kids. We're, we're trying to decarbonize the economy. We're trying to build a mass transit system trying to get more people involved in public life, of all faiths and none, actually, as well. And I will say, actually, I, big big shout, I had massive support from the mosques right from the beginning as well, as a believer. Interestingly, and as a challenge, the mosques were much more overt and supportive of me in the first election than the churches were. Right? Because I think the churches were scared of electoral politics. Right. And the, you know, my Muslim brothers and sisters just say, this is our man, right. this, is, this is our guy. Do you think that's a fear, though, of, of, again, going back to America, how the American church has become so enmeshed in politics? Do you not think UK church leaders just think, well, we don't want to end up with a system like they've got over there, so let's just not talk about politics? Yeah, it could be. And, and I think it's a valid fear, is this one I have, too. I suppose, if I'm honest about it, I want churches to get involved in politics, isn't it, as long as they vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tweet that. <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm being jokey here because I always say to the churches, don't vote for me just because I'm a Christian. But yeah. no, there is a sense in which if they have that political perspective of a Campolo and a Jim Wallace, then I'm really comfortable with it. And a tip, you know. Um, uh, uh, but no, I mean, what I have said to the churches is just get involved in the first instance and then, you know, sort it out um, after. But I, there is a concern that, that yeah, some of the politics that can, can happen in the church can be a bit problematic, particularly as I shared with you at the beginning, when you get that kind of tradition of teaching that says, you know, to trust your brain is almost carnal and to trust your brain is not to trust in God. Uh, when I think, you know, again, one of my little, you know, kind of conversations with the church in Bristol has been, you know, we'll stand before God one day and say, why did all these bad things happen? And God might say, well, I gave you a massive organization. <laughs> I gave you brains. And I gave you a democracy. <laughs> if you chose not to line all those things up to get the outcomes you've been praying for, then what can I do? <laughs> you know, maybe the miracle is actually the miraculous intervention that happens is in us bringing our skills with our organization and then putting them into the service, you know, of the country to get outcomes, to make sure in a city like Bristol, you know, that one in four children aren't, aren't living in income deprived households, to make sure that leveling up actually makes sense to make sure that when national pronouncements are made on decarbonisation, they're for real. They're not just abstract, abstract announcements. To make sure that we ask for a better quality civic discourse rather than, dare I say, to get a bit political, ministers indulging in culture wars for cheap, for cheap um, popularity. You know, we're supposed to you know, you know, asking for better, showing better and asking for better. You mentioned um, Tony Campolo a couple of times, who's a previous guest on this show, well-known evangelical um, in America. Last time, one of the last times we spoke to him was about some of his um, change of change of mind, change of heart on, on gay marriage. He used to take a more conservative view on that and now believes the Bible does not prohibit same-sex relationships at all. I'm, I'm aware, um, you know, you've, you've made clear your support 
for um, for gay marriage and attended Pride events. So clearly it's, it's not a problem for you either. My question was just, have you had a similar experience to Tony Campolo in that was there a change of mind that needed to happen um, theologically on that issue? Or, or, is, or is that something you've always believed that gay marriage um, is something that, that is, um, should be encouraged and theologically that God would not have a problem with it? No, I, it's interesting. That's an interesting question, actually, because I think I grew up in churches that taught uh, that being gay was wrong. But my inclination has always been to the dispossession of marginalised, right? So, and any teaching that that has, even when I didn't know, any teaching that kind of pushed me towards further marginalising people, I've always felt uncomfortable with it. So interesting, when I went to D.C., when I went to Washington, D.C., I had a number of questions that I wanted to uh, uh, to work through in terms of faith. And one of them was about biblical attitudes to gay people. Um, and I ended up living um, in uh, in Columbia Heights, which is just up on Dupont Circle. And the first church I went to, and I'm going to do this inverted commas, was in quote marks, a gay church, right? Or a church that welcomed gay people. Um, and it was one of my colleagues, he invited me and, and I went and I, he didn't say anything, but then I worked out when I was there. I was like, oh, this, and then I was going out with the guy and, and those were conversations I was having with the guys I was then um, hanging around with and just finding out about their own faith journeys because they were in the church. I said, well, you know, what's your uh, views? And I, you know, and I welcomed that. And then when I moved to, um, I went to a talk at the time, actually, interestingly, where Tony was debating with his wife, Peggy, because Peggy has always been of the belief yeah. that actually it's about long-term you know committed relationships that's what has been required and, and Tony at the time was saying um uh, no I you know you can be born gay but you shouldn't practice and, and they would debate and they would say well that, that shouldn't split us apart but I also saw the pain when after the talk one time when I, the couple of people I was with were, uh, were were gay and we were talking to Tony afterwards and he was broken up because I think he was agonizing over how can I have that position when it causes pain and the sense of alienation to these young people I'm talking to uh, now. So that that's essentially been my my journey. I don't. One is, you know, I think there are more important things than what people do in a, in, to, to pivot a faith on. For example, people want to get so hit up about morality, you know, talk about the fact that black people are born destined to die earlier than white people in the United States, a country that says in God we trust and puts it at the heart of it. You know, talk about the number of kids that are dying, dying every, uh, you know, every day. You know, I, I, I in, in the hierarchy of priority issues for the church to get excited about, I think it's about poverty, inequality, exploitation. And there I also say the church's historical uh, participation in, in, regimes of injustice that that should really uh, I would put at the top of my list mm. it, it is incredible when you look back at church history and you just think how on earth were Christians walking around for example killing people and waging war and it you know was justified theologically and then you know obviously slavery and everything else do you ever find yourself wondering will, will Christians in 200 or 300 or 400 years time look back on us and think how could they do xyz I, I'd imagine, so. well, I don't know. I, I mean, Martin Luther King uh, makes the point, doesn't he, that people make the easy assumption that time leads to progress. And in fact, he says, people of ill will have used time much more effectively than people of goodwill. It doesn't. So I don't know whether there'll be any, you know, deep moral um, 
you know, kind of advance where we'll, we'll look back with a deep reflection. I certainly don't buy into the moral decay argument over the centuries as well. I love, again, I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time in the US, but here, you know, when people yeah. talk about having values disappeared, right, what values? So it's neither moral decay nor moral, pro, nor moral progress for you? Neither. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah. yeah, I don't, I, I think you can make the case either way. I mean, we used to have kids up, kids up chimneys, didn't we? You know, and, and that was that the height when was that when we when we had God in the center in the United States? They talk about you know having prayer in schools. Well, that didn't help black kids that weren't allowed to go to schools with the white kids, did it? You know, so it's, it's a mix in it, it's a mixed bag. Just finally, then I did want to ask you um, you've got you've got another four years. What do you want three to be? Years. No, three years, excuse me. You've got another three years. If there's just one thing you can do in the next three years, and I'm sure you'll do 25 or more, but if there was just one, what do you want that to be in the next three years? What's top priority? Build affordable homes for people. So I think it's the single most significant policy tool for social outcomes, but also the kind of homes we build and where we build them will, will determine our pla the planetary price paid for us meeting the needs of our population. It'd be one of the biggest determinants of the price the planet pays in terms of carbon and loss of nature. All right. Well, Marvin Rees, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you very much. I'm Sam Hales, and that was my interview with Marvin Rees, the mayor of Bristol. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. Really interesting stuff to delve into issues related to Black Lives Matter, race, also his Christian faith, how his faith has changed over time, his experiences both in America and the UK. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We've also written up that interview and put it in the latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine. If you enjoy the profile here on Premier Christian Radio, you are sure to love premier christianity magazine every month we give you the latest news but we also tell you what it means we analyze we give comments we give explanation we open up the big issues facing the uk church and beyond today so why not take advantage of our very special offer it's only running for a limited amount of time but you can now get the print magazine and full online access for only one pound a month £1 a month for your first three-month subscription to Premier Christianity. Take advantage of that special offer right now at premierchristianity.com. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend, and we will see you next time.